there, it's Jonathan Strickland, and I'm here to introduce a playlist of 10 episodes of my podcast, Tech Stuff, that are all about entertainment and entertainment-related fields, from video games to television series to films to internet videos from yesteryear. So I hope you guys enjoy these episodes. You can go to the Tech Stuff podcast page and subscribe to listen to all sorts of episodes about tech from all realms. And hopefully this will provide a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of education, and probably more than a few puns because that's kind of how I roll. Enjoy this playlist. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are now going to view the history of esports in this classic episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Esports is something that has definitely gained a lot of popularity and a small amount of respect among uh, uh, outer circles. Uh, I think we're still got a long way to go before people accept esports as being as valid as any other sport, but certainly the fans treat it like, you know, like it's, it's, it's a big, big deal. So let's take a listen. Today, we're going to talk specifically about the realm of professional gaming and professional gaming leagues, as well as how eye tracking technology is integrated into that world these days. So think of this as the conclusion of that that loosely serialized series of episodes. And then after this one, our next episode will probably be about something completely unrelated. So if you are uh, uh, satisfied, satiated, let us say, with video game content, fear not. We will cover something different in our next episode. If you love video game content, fear not. Eventually I'll get back to it. It'll happen because it plays a big role in tech. Now, let's talk about esports. I've covered related topics, uh, including some way back in the old days of tech stuff when Chris Paulette and I used to shout our podcast from the top of a building in Buckhead in Atlanta. And the only way you could hear it was if you were in the general neighborhood. There is a classic episode titled, Can You Make a Living Playing Games? And that original episode came out on July 27th, two thousand. 11. Holy cow, guys, I've been doing this show a long time. The answer, by the way, is yes, you can make money playing video games if you're good enough. We're going to talk a bit today about the industry around competitive professional video game players, better known as esports. I'll have a chance to chat with Robert Ocalini, VP of Esports Products over uh, at Turner Sports. And later on, I'll also chat with Brian DeZayas and David Chen of Alienware to talk about the use of eye tracking tech in esports and how it can enhance the experience. We've got a lot of wonderful folks who gave over their time and their expertise to help make this episode happen. So big thanks to all of them. And I can't wait for you guys to hear what they have to say because they're really fascinating people. But before we dive into that, it's always fun, at least for me anyway, to talk about the history of whatever the subject is at hand. So how old do you think esports to be? Do you think it rose up in the 90s? 
like uh, maybe the late 90s over in South Korea. Or maybe you would go back to like the 1980s when people like Billy Mitchell established world record high scores in arcade games like Pac-Man. Well, depending upon your definition of esports, the real birth of the industry dates back to 1972. That's when students at Stanford University pitted their elite gaming skills in a tournament of space war. Now, Steve Russell had led a small group of designers way back in 1962 to create Space War, which was one of the first examples of a computer game to use a dynamic display. Now, ever since we've had computers, people have been trying to figure out ways to make those computers do stuff that they weren't intended to do, like play games. The original computers weren't meant to do that, but you get enough people who are mathematically gifted together and they start thinking about the potential for math to do practically anything, eventually they're going to start creating programs that play games, including things like tic-tac-toe. But it wasn't until the 1960s that people were looking at the potential of creating displays for computers. Otherwise, you were getting readouts that were either on paper or sometimes just a bank of lights would light up a specific way, and that's how you knew what the output was of whatever your input was. So... Space War was one of these early, early, early examples of a game that uses such a dynamic display. Players would control one of two spaceships. There was one called The Needle and one called The Wedge. And they were called that because, obviously, of their their shapes. And these spaceships could fly around in a two-dimensional plane. So you could fly along that XY axis, but not the Z. There was no third dimension to this. And it looked like a little space field, and you were te technically you were flying around the gravity well of a star. So there was this gravitational effect that came into play with the game. And your whole goal was to destroy the other starship. So it was a player-versus-player player game that uh, came out in 1962. And by came out, I mean it was developed for a, what at that time, amounted to a supercomputer. And if you also happen to have a supercomputer and you could get a copy of the code, you could install and play that game yourself. Not even install, run the game. It's not really even an installation because we're not talking about a hard disk at this point. By 1972, several engineering and computer science schools had a version of this game and then the tournament was born. The grand prize for this tournament back in 1972 was a whole year subscription to Rolling Stone magazine. The tournament itself took place in the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab, so one of the most important events to ever take place in that AI lab in the history of mankind, as far as I'm concerned. Stuart Brand, who at the time was a writer and editor for Rolling Stone, was the organizer for this event. His piece in Rolling Stone equated the players with athletes in traditional sports. So from the very beginning, there were parallels, though at the time the treatment might have been a touch tongue-in-cheek, maybe a little playful, satirical. But the version that the students were playing of Space War was slightly altered from the one that debuted back in 1962. There was a programmer named Ralph Gorin who added in a couple of elements to the game to make it more competitive and interesting. He added in the capacity for ships to suffer partial damage before being destroyed, so you could take more than one hit. And he also threw in some space mines, so some obstacles that you could deploy within the game field, and uh, maybe your opponent would fly into them and destroy himself. And that would just make the game more interesting to play and watch. 
by the way, Ralph Gordon would later go on to create the world's first spell checker. So when you hear about some of these people who were involved in this tournament, a lot of them went on to do some very important things in the realm of technology and, and computer science. Now, the winner of that first tournament was a guy named Bruce Baumgart. And Baumgart would go on to work at the Internet Archive, and later on he would become the head of operations at Cool C-U-I-L. And you may, oh my droogs, not remember what cool is. Things changing so scory nowadays and people quick to forget. Uh, it Cool was one of those companies that when it launched got a lot of uh, people poking fun at it for its name. That C-U-I-L being spelled cool. It was a short-lived search engine. It did not last very long. It had really long entries. So when you did a search, you would get uh, the results with very long uh, descriptors of what those search results were, plus a thumbnail that would appear next to every search result. But it just didn't catch on. It ended up shutting down in September 2010. But while cool would come and go, video game tournaments were really here to stay. And whether they were informal or they were big to-dos, they continued largely beneath the notice of the general public. The introduction of the personal computer and various gaming systems in the 1980s helped a little bit, as, as did the rise of the arcade, but by and large, video game competitions remained confined to a niche audience. In the late 1990s, gaming had reached a new level, largely because personal computers were much more common, and this would be the early days of the high-powered graphics processing units, or GPUs, those dedicated graphics cards, which were the devices that were actually giving computers the horsepower needed to run games that had three-dimensional graphics, so stuff like Quake. And in fact, one of the earliest tournaments of this time was a Quake competition. It was held in 1997, and the organization holding it was Red Annihilation. It drew 2,000 participants, and the prize was a doozy. If you won, you got to go home with a Ferrari that once belonged to John Carmack. He was one of the lead developers of Quake. On June 27, 1997, Angel M Munoz founded the Cyber Athlete Professional League, or the CPL. This was a group that organized various tournaments and pioneered the field of esports professional tournaments. It operated out of the United States until 2008, when the company nearly dissolved due to an overcrowded scene. It got acquired and then sort of relaunched in China. But in just a decade, we saw that the environment had changed from a curiosity into a pretty big industry. This Cyber Athlete Professional League went from being the only game in town, pun intended, to being a, a, a fish in a very large pond that was growing completely beyond what it originally was. Now, early on, the emphasis in these tournaments was on uh, first-person shooter games, games like Quake. Uh, then sports titles also became popular in tournament play. Uh, then you might get things like fighting games. They popped up a little bit later. And then real-time strategy genre games joined the ranks. And that's when the game StarCraft Brood War rose to prominence in the tournament scene. While tournaments were still largely a niche interest in the United States, in other parts of the world, they had become incredibly popular. And one of those regions was South Korea. South Korea has two big game channels. 
uh, on GameNet and NBC Game, both of which created leagues of professional StarCraft players who would compete against each other for prizes. The country takes professional gaming extremely seriously. In fact, when a scandal broke out in 2010 that some StarCraft players were purposefully throwing games as part of a gambling scheme, the government levied harsh punishments against the accused players, all of whom were banned for life from professional StarCraft competition. In 2000, the World Cyber Games and Electronic Sports World Cup both launched, and they gave professional gaming a bigger spotlight. Two years later, the Major League Gaming Professional Game League launched, and since then, professional video game leagues have been picking up speed. We've also seen other types of games enter this realm, including MOBAs, things like Dota 2 and Smite and League of Legends. Those have become enormously popular in the professional gaming league scene. In recent years, we've also seen a big push coming from major broadcasters to elevate professional video game tournaments. I had a chance to speak with Robert Occellini, who oversees E-League at Turner, to talk about it. Now, Robert, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Stuff. I want to kind of get an idea about how E-League came about and, uh, and, and sort of get an idea of, of how it's evolved and, and what you have seen so far in that space, because while esports, I think uh, it's something that more and more people are are aware of, it's still sort of an emerging kind of form of entertainment for a large part of the mainstream audience. I think that's changing, especially among younger demographics. I think they're far more aware, especially now that we're seeing video games being used as a form of just the playing of video games being used as a form of entertainment throughout lots of different platforms. But tell me specifically about E-League. Sure. So uh, E-League was first announced about two years ago. Um, it actually wasn't called E-League at the time. We didn't have a name yet. Um, but we were working on it, I would say, for probably six months or so before that uh, September 2015 announcement. Um, and really, it came from the sort of interest came from the very senior levels of, of Turner. So uh, Kevin Riley, who is the, the head of TBS and TNT, came to the company with a lot of contacts in gaming. Um, and, you know, he's in L.A. and esports has really taken off in Los Angeles. And so he came in uh, with a lot of interest in esports. And then from the Turner sports side, you know, Lenny Daniels and David Levy um, had a had a lot of interest in the space. They saw, you know, they, they kept hearing uh, that this space was developing. They kind of saw what was happening. And, and actually, at first, um, at the time I was working on the NBA's digital products here, I did seven seasons working on the NBA mobile apps and over the top apps and NBA League Pass. Um, and for a little while, as a part-time job, I was actually going to meetings and uh, working on this. And, you know, sort of my background is more in digital product, but I'm a lifelong gamer and very interested in competitive gaming and was actually the GM of a competitive World of Warcraft guild. Um, so I kind of had my own uh, long history with, with gaming and, and esports. Um, on the fan side and on the playing side. Um, so I kind of was able to bring that to the table um, as we looked into this. 
And then I think probably around uh, beginning of July, July 2015, we sort of decided what direction we were going to go in. And at that time, they they decided that if I wanted to work on this full time, they'd give me that opportunity. And I really haven't looked back, um, nor have nor has the company. Um, uh, so you know, we we did this deal with uh, IMG. Uh, E-League is a joint venture with WME IMG, and uh, we started meeting with teams. We actually had a big team summit in September 2015 because we were really the first big media brand to enter into this esports space, and we wanted to make sure that we were entering it with reverence, um, with you know an eye towards authenticity. And then, of course, you know, we'd already decided at that point that we were going to work with Counter-Strike, um, that we were talking to and getting feedback from the Counter-Strike community. Um, about two months later, we came up with a name uh, and logo and all of that stuff and launched our website. And then in January of 2016, we did our very first tournament, um, the Road to Vegas, and that was... Uh, essentially sort of an open qualifier for one of the spots in our inaugural season later in 2016. Um, we really started the league and league play in earnest in May of 2016 um, with our first Counter-Strike season. We followed that up uh, later in uh, 2016. We had the opportunity to do the Overwatch Open, we were like the first big Overwatch tournament. Um, and then we did a second season of Counter-Strike. Around that time frame, we were also awarded the first Counter-Strike Major of 2017. Um, and we did that in January. And then in, in 2017, we've, we've branched out a little bit and have done some stuff with Street Fighter. Uh, we did a series, a docu-series around uh, the International, which is the big Dota World Championship. And then finally, right now, we're running our what is essentially our third Counter-Strike season, the premiere. Um, and, you know, that's where Group D starts tonight. Uh, and then the finals the week of uh, October 10th. So, you know, it's been uh, it's been kind of a wild ride. We went from from, you know, nothing and no organization to a thriving uh, business with a lot of employees and, uh, you know, have done a lot of tournaments at this point. Um, I, I think, you know, the only other thing I'll add that I shouldn't have glossed over is the amazing studio that we built downstairs that's built for esports. Whether that game is 1v1 or 6v6, we have built the studio in a way that um, it can, it can, easily support any game that we want to do. And then, of course, we've got all of the, you know, other stuff you would want, practice space for the players, a player lounge, first-class green room for our talent, um, and then all the tech that you would need to, to support doing something like a Counter-Strike tournament, which is a pretty big undertaking. Right, where every tiny little technical detail can end up uh, having an influence on actual gameplay, it is really important as well, pointing out to my listeners here, that by going this route, by having the tournament where you've got the system set up where 
you know, you're going to have a really good uh, uh, approach to running these games. It also means everyone's on equal footing. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're not worried about someone who's souped up their game engine so or their game system so much that they're going to have an unfair advantage over anyone else. It really does bring it down to skill and in the case of games like Counter-Strike, uh, really good team communication and team uh, cooperation. I, I'm really fascinated by this. And since you've had experience working in a a realm that was uh, that was focused on traditional sports, something that I think a lot of people can can kind of get their mind around for for people who haven't made that that step from the idea of, well, a professional sport where you're playing physically in a uh, on a court or on a field or whatever it may be. That's one thing. But professional video game playing, how is that something that you how can you consider that person an athlete? Well, you've seen both worlds. What's your kind of response to that sort of uh, 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 like if anyone's asking questions or if they're just expressing skepticism that someone could be an athlete playing video games? By the way, I'm totally on the board of professional video game players are on a level that is far, far far beyond the capabilities of the average person. Sure. I mean, listen, I think that that skepticism is a natural, a natural thing, right? Like I think with, with physical sports, it's very easy to tell that I cannot jump as high off the ground as LeBron James. Right. Um, but me sitting in front of a computer, it doesn't look optically any different than Olaf Meister or Faker or any of these sort of top tier esports players. But I will tell you that um, from a talent perspective, from a commitment perspective, these gentlemen are no, and women are no different than professional athletes in traditional stick and ball sports. They are a cut above and, you know, you, if you were to put an average or even above average sort of casual video game athlete up against these guys, they would just get completely and utterly wrecked. You know, I think that one of the interesting things that we've done here at Turner this year is we had an employee tournament for Street Fighter. So we did, we did this uh, six-week Street Fighter season where we had the best Street Fighter players in the world come to our campus and play. And then um, a couple weeks after that tournament was over, we had an internal tournament that culminated with a finals that was played in the very same studio where our Street Fighter tournament was hosted. Um, and, you know, sure enough, Turner's a pretty big company. There's some really good Street Fighter players here. But Talking to the, the sort of experts uh, that we have on staff, the guy who won the tournament would be like the 10th best player at a local Atlanta semi-professional tournament. And the guy who would win that tournament wouldn't even be in the top 100 in the world. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a big difference between the 250 guys who play Counter-Strike sort of at the top level professionally and the seven or eight million people who play it on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, I'm in definitely, you can tell I'm in the camp of 
this is no different than the other sports. There is a scarcity of of talent and then the ability to sort of focus that the commitment that it requires to play these games at a top level um, is is ridiculous. Uh, I guess the last point I'd make on that is um, it's also really hard to stay on top. And, you know, there's one team currently that, you know, last year won, I think, five tournaments uh, during the regular tournament season. And this year uh, made it to the finals of the major. But we've seen them slowly decline. The name of the team is Virtus Pro. And we love them. They won our first season. Um, but we've seen them slowly uh, decline and they actually didn't make it to the, the playoffs of our current tournament. And I think that that shows like just how tight it is at the very top, right? Like even just kind of in six months, a team can go from being virtually unbeatable over a three or four month time period to not even making it to the, the late stages of any tournaments. There's th- that very top level is it is the top of the pyramid in, in every way, shape, or form. Now, in your experience of uh, overseeing these things, being part of the, the E-League, uh, does it feel like when there's a tournament going, when you have these people at this these very elite levels of performance competing against each other, is it a similar kind of of atmosphere of excitement to watch people at that level play similar to what you might see in a, a, a traditional sporting arena? I think, you know, I think for, so it's, there are differences there that I would call out, right? So um, for some tournaments, and, and I'm not alluding to ours, almost all of the competition except for the finals is played over the internet, right? And so, you know, the spectator experience there is on Twitch and on YouTube. And, you know, the the chat experience is like a proxy for the arena, if that makes sense. Almost like a virtual proxy. I would say, though, at the very top level, if you were to, were to attend like our finals at the Fox Theater in Atlanta for the major or an ESL one in New York or the finals of a DreamHack, they have all of the same uh, trappings and crowd engagement that, you know, a, a professional Atlanta sports team has. And, you know, I go, I'm a season ticket holder for our, our new MLS team, which probably has about as good fan engagement as you could possibly have. And it, it feels the same to me as the, the really rabid fans for the finals of our major or the finals of the Dota 2 International. I went to that this summer, too, at Key Arena, which is where the Sonics used to play in Seattle. So even the same buildings in some case. Although I will also say those buildings can sometimes not be the best venues for watching esports because you're trying to watch on a screen and watch kind of what's going on stage. But what's going on on stage a lot of the time is some guys in headsets yelling to each other, right? Like <laughs> the more interesting thing is the combination of what they're doing with what's happening on the screen. Right. Similar to what we've seen with various platforms where people are setting up webcams to capture their their 
footage of how they react while they're playing games. I imagine something similar is useful in this kind of realm. When we come back, we'll talk more about the advances in technology that are making it easier and more enjoyable to watch gaming as a professional sport. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. previous episode, I spoke with Oscar Werner over at Toby Tech about eye-tracking technology, and we talked a bit about how it could be used in professional gaming. But to get a more thorough perspective on it, I had a conversation with Brian DeZayas and David Chen of Alienware about how it's transforming esports. Yeah, so um, one of the things that Alienware is always doing, right, we're always trying to look for the, the next innovative thing, what's going to help gamers, whether they're professional or just, you know, folks that just want to have fun playing games. How can they have more fun? How can they get better at their games? I mean, so on. I just make it as immersive as possible. Um, so, you know, as, as we launch and look at new technology, um, uh, one of the things that was coming down the pike several years ago um, is eye tracking. Now, historically, you've thought of uh, eye tracking or, you know, eye tracking mainly for some cool stuff like trying to... Uh, to maybe log into a computer or something like that, kind of like facial recognition. Um, but as the technology's evolved, as it's gotten smaller, been able to put into laptops and things like that, um, it really, there's a lot of innovative ways to, uh, things we could do as you're just you know, tracking where the eye's looking. And so what we started working with Toby on is how can we adopt that and, that into something meaningful for gamers. And at the same time, you know, we've, we've seen and known that gamers are always looking for an advantage. So I'll give you an example. You know, when most, most gamers will, at some point, if they're really into a game, right, they're going to go to YouTube or they're going to go onto Twitch, and they're going to try and get better at their game. They're going to look at tips and tricks. And, you know, I'm even doing it today. I'm, I'm, I'm heavily invested in PUBG and um, it seems like every other day or every day I'm trying to see, you know, where can I get some tips and tricks and get better at it because I'm not very good, Jonathan, but, you know, <laughs> I dive in there anyway. I completely, but, uh, I completely sympathize. Kind of <laughs> but it's too much fun to avoid. So, uh, but, but kind of that, that nature and just wanting to get better. Um, and eye tracking, as we're thinking about how to leverage this, provided a real... Uh, a real way to track how the best players in the world at a specific game or any game that they're playing, where are they looking? You know, gaming is so much about where you're looking, where you're paying attention, where your focus is. And eye tracking really enabled really the world, and, and we'll, we'll talk some, definitely about this, but enabled gamers to see where the best players in the world are looking at any point in time. So are they looking at the mini-map? Are they looking down the corridor? Are they looking down a hallway um, right before, you know, they, they frag somebody or they get fragged or whatever it might be happening in the match? So we saw this real opportunity, this real thing that gamers are looking to, to do and that's get better, and this technology that really allows a new level of data capture. And then you turn that into some analytics and can actually put out um, some pretty interesting information. So that's kind of at the very beginning conceptually when we're just, you know, sitting around with 
you know, our internal product group teams, our internal marketing teams, talking to esports organizations, um, and you know, our third-party partners like Toby, talking about what are the priorities that we have coming up. You know, this isn't just a something we spoke about six months ago. This is years in the making of understanding what gamers are looking for and working with these technology partners. So that's kind of how it all started. And um, and, and, and David, if you have, um, you obviously played an integral part for us here in, in getting this technology rolled out with uh, uh, with uh, with Turner and E League. So, um, if there's anything you want to add on on where this started, uh, please feel free. Yeah, I would just say, and to your point earlier, a lot of this technology and, and research into this technology as part of gaming, uh, even beyond gaming, has been around for a couple of years now, and it hasn't really been until now until the technology has become. Uh, you know, smaller and more nimble that it's, you know, hitting this more consumer level focus. But I'm sure in the past they've been using eye tracking to look at how people respond to ads online, you know, when they do heat mapping on websites and where people respond. Um, and it wasn't until I think a couple of years ago, probably two or three years ago, that one of our partners, Team Liquid, um, they had done some research of their own uh, with, I believe it was the Mayo uh, Research Clinic over in California, um, and they'd work with a, uh, uh, I believe, a professor there who was researching kind of eye tracking as part of video gaming, the level of cognition, and just the uh, you know research level analytics between some of the you know oldest veteran players versus you know young hot starts who are coming out you know 16, 17, and dominating the scene. Um, and the research that he saw in some of these games are really startling as far as you know veterans being able to still keep an edge ahead through their experience and just how quick their eyes are and being able to, you know, cycle between uh, icons from, you know, a hundred different characters and they have a lot more in their memory bank to pull from and react from than a lot of these younger players. Um, and again, at that time, you know, that research was probably being done on a ten to twelve thousand dollar piece of equipment that was tracking your eyes and it was cumbersome. And now we're seeing it to the point where again it's able to be equipped into a laptop and it's something that, you know, pretty much a lot of consumers and teens um, have at their immediate disposal. Um, and when I'm bringing this back home to Team Liquid, you know, as more and more teams are uh, growing in the space and as more and more traditional sports teams are also getting involved in esports, there's this growing uh, desire to understand, again, the dynamics of the athleticism or the cognition and skill of a traditional athlete versus an esports athlete. And I think we're barely scratching the surface of what that means today. Um, and as more and more other technology catches up, I think we all dream of finding other big, insightful ways that esports can provide a level of biometric data um, to allow us to appreciate, you know, what, what the best do well, uh, and also how you know average Joes like you and I can strive to uh, chase after some of that greatness in certain categories. Um, so it's definitely very, very exciting. That's so cool, and 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 you know, I I too am chasing after that elusive chicken dinner over at PUBG, <laughs> and and it it remains just outside my grasp. Uh, so being able to see how not just not just how well someone plays, but how they go about playing that way, there is something really enticing about that. The not just you know when we watch professional sports. Typically, we can see great 
great displays of athleticism. But, uh, you know, people are not machines. We can break things down and use slow motion and various camera angles to kind of analyze the basics. But to me, the fact that we're talking about a digital realm and then being able to track our physical motions and map that to the actions of a digital realm, it does seem like this is uh, much more conducive to breaking things down into quantifiable aspects to really talk about, well, you know, this person is checking their mini map 27% more frequently than someone who is not a professional gamer. That's a really interesting stat and could really uh, inform people how to play the game at a slightly higher level than what they were doing before, knowing, of course, that it's not a magic substitute for the hours of practice, you know, countless hours of practice for some of these professional gamers who will sit down for eight or 10 hours and play a game. And that's largely how they got as good as they are. But then also a tool for them to look at afterward. Maybe they've played in a tournament. Maybe they played really well and they want to see what what they were doing and remember to really hone in on those particular types of, uh, of of strategies in future tournaments, or they didn't do so well, and maybe they want to see what the difference is between their performance and someone else's. Uh, I also like the idea of this from, if we're looking beyond esports, which we'll get back to in a second, I don't want to leave that behind, but I like this idea also from a game designer standpoint, the idea of getting more information about what your players see as important in your game means that game designers can actually use that information to make more effective games down the line. Um, and beyond that, if you if you think about this technology reaching a point where it becomes more of a uh, uh, kind of a, a standard piece of tech that gets rolled out into laptops in the future or computers in general in the future, you could see this being incorporated into games themselves, where it's not just analysis, but it becomes an element of gameplay. Like I, I think of a a game perhaps like L.A. Noir, where uh, part of that game involves the player watching a virtual character's reaction as you're interrogating the character. And that in turn informs you as to whether or not that character is telling the truth or telling a lie. Well, imagine eye tracking technology where the character appears to be aware of where you are looking. And then that adds a whole new game element. So to me, the eye tracking technology in the gaming world, I mean, as you say, we're at the very beginning of it. Even if you just and I don't mean to 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 uh, make this sound less than what it is, but even if you are restricting that attention to esports. There are so many incredible potential applications for this technology, and it's really exciting to be in these fairly early days talking about where we're going right now. Um, so, getting back to esports and getting back into that realm, can you talk a little bit about the relationships that have formed now that uh, you guys are really kind of? Uh, getting more involved with incorporating eye tracking technology and the pro gaming realm. I, I want to hear more about this, uh, this, this relationship and how that has developed over time. Yeah, absolutely. You make, you make some, some great points, Jonathan. I think, you know, as we, as we think about where we are, we are very much um, just at, at the beginning point of, of showcasing this kind of technology and eye tracking technology um, to the world, right? And 
Um, I'll definitely uh, jump into the uh, the partners and talk about the partners and what we've done. Um, but you, you, you had made some really interesting comments about where is, you know, who can get the most benefit out of uh, technologies like this, like eye tracking and, and that kind of thing. And there's obviously some very clear benefits for professional players and for amateurs that are trying to become professional, right? Just this notion of getting better, learning from the pros that are out there, just like traditional sports. Um, but one of the other parts that really intrigued us here as we're trying to, trying to roll out this kind of technology is for, the, for just the viewer, um, for the fan, one of the things that has not kind of caught up is with traditional sports is the viewing experience and the commentating. A lot of the commentating in the past for eSports has been around, you know, the commentator explaining what's going on, um, but verbally. There really wasn't a visual, a visual cues or visual explanations of what's happening in the match. You know, uh, obviously with NFL or NBA, there's a lot of um, analytic things and things that happen through the broadcast, right? Think of teleprompters and and things like that. Well, there really wasn't that for esports. And so, as we were introducing this technology and figuring out how can we bring this and how, what should we be doing, um, we really wanted to make that viewing experience better for, you know, the hundreds of millions of gaming fans that are watching esports globally. And then we had to pay, decide, you know, okay, how who can who shares our values? Who can who will work with us to to bring this technology to the forefront? And, you know, earlier this year in January, um, we announced a partnership and we've been working very closely with, um, with Turner and with E-League around all the, all the tournaments that they're running. And um, actually just here in September for the first time, um, partnership between us, Toby, and, and E-League, um, we rolled out the, uh, the Getting Technical segment on the E-League broadcast and really being able to, to showcase to fans and to the viewers this iGaze technology that's being captured through the, through the tracking software, eye tracking software. So um, from a partnership side, uh, it has been, uh, it, was, it was very important to us to select partners and work with partners that shared, quite honestly, our vision of making this better for, for the viewer. Because uh, we know professionals are going to continue to innovate and get better. We're at the forefront working with them on separate uh, separate programs. Um, amateurs are always going to look to get better because they want they they want so badly to become a professional. Um, but there's a ton of people that just enjoy esports because of what it is, and how can we make it better for them? So, um, David, I'll, I'll hand over to you because you uh, again uh, would love for you to chime in and talk through. Uh, just the relationship we have with Turner and E-League and, and how all that came together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I feel like this boils back down to a point of trying to be a good steward as far as a, a leader in the industry on behalf of the esports and really just making it uh, a bit easier for viewers overall to get more out of the viewing experience, whether they're seasoned veterans who have been watching the game for a long time uh, or some who may be new to the game as well. We've seen the studies from Newsu that say you know, 40% of a lot of these esports viewers don't even play the games that they watch. So if we're trying to help esports grow in the Western world, 
that's likely going to be introducing esports to people who are very new to the game, maybe your family, maybe your friends, things like that. Um, so when it came to working with E-League, I think it was a no-brainer for us to start off with Counter-Strike. When you look at the landscape of esports titles out there, you can look at your League of Legends, your Dotas, and your MOBAs out there. It does have a rather high learning curve for people who may not be as familiar with the title. Um, so definitely when you look at a game like Counter-Strike, there's really nothing to misunderstand about, you know, don't be on the wrong pointed end of the gun. Um, and so I think being able to find a game that immediately resonates and can be digested by a larger audience helps us uh, not only again, bring this to a wider audience, but then when you factor in the first-person perspective and what eye-tracking uh, can really bring in from a synergy perspective there, it really made a lot of sense to find the right partner like Easy to have uh, a right tournament where, again, Counter-Strike was their bread and butter for the better part of two years now. Um, they hosted the major in January to uh, overwhelming success. Um, and they're going to continue uh, to try and see how they can push the limits of Counter-Strike even further and further as we look towards the future. But it really boils down to what ways can we have this experience um, be more digestible to a, a huge gaming audience out there. So for eye-tracking and Counter-Strike, where was the player looking? What were the contexts of you know, how they made the decision that they did? Um, and we've seen a lot of excitement from it. We've seen a tremendous amount of excitement from the fans. They've been really... Uh, receptive of the eye tracking, uh, clicks. They've been telling us how they want to see, you know, other uh, players, specific players get put under the, the microscope. Um, you know, they would love to be able to get a, a better, clearer breakdown of exactly how they pulled off the ace that they did. We're seeing a lot of really great reception from the commentators as well. So when we look at E-League, uh, the, you know, Anders, uh, and a lot of the guys who are providing kind of the color, uh, you know, play-by-play commentary, have been excited to be able to talk, you know, a little bit more about the nuances of, you know, for example, how an in-game leader on the team may index more between the mini-map and looking at the economy of the team and the other four players who are more of the, you know, damage doers and the, um, you know, the meat and guns of the team are just more focused on playing. Um, and so I think it really opens up a way to present the game, again, to just a wide variety of people and, it helps us as a brand find meaningful ways to contribute to the game back to the community rather than, you know, just business as usual, logo branding and sponsorship rights and things like that. Fascinating. I, I think I also find it really interesting that, that uh, Counter-Strike is the uh, sort of the go-to game. It makes perfect sense, but uh, I recently did a multi-part series on the history of Valve. And so my listeners now know that Counter-Strike, that's a game that originally was, you know, a modification. Uh, it was a mod of Half-Life that came out 99, 2000, that it's gone through a couple of different uh, variations. The source version of it coming out a few years ago, 2012, I believe it was. And to see that that game is still uh, so, so such a big part of esports, it is, which makes sense. It requires people to have very uh, strong skill sets as well as be very good team players if you want to have a strong Counter-Strike team. And I can definitely see where that value comes in. I remember distinctly when I attended a CES many years ago, uh, one of the the 
companies there, one of the the computer companies, uh, were, were hosting uh, Ubisoft's team at the time, uh, the Frag Dolls, who were professional gamers. And the Frag Dolls were taking on all comers. And so people would step up, they'd form a team of four, and then three of the Frag Dolls would just decimate them. And it happened over and over and over again. And it was exciting to watch, but it would have been so much more interesting to actually see how they played together as a team beyond just knowing that they're coordinating much better, that they have a good knowledge of the maps, being able to see where they're looking and how frequently they're looking around. Do, do they stare at one place for any given time or are they just constantly scanning? Uh, that sort of stuff would have been really interesting to see. So I find this really exciting. And as you point out, it also, by giving more information, by informing the audience, you spend less time uh trying to familiarize yourself with the way the game is working. It becomes much more apparent early on if you're able to see what other people are looking at. And I think it removes that barrier. Uh, I think it also really illustrates how professional gamers are, are you know, just incredibly good at what they do beyond racking up high scores. Because I think f f still among certain populations, at least, the idea of professional gaming is somewhat scoffed at, uh, whereas, you know, we accept professional sports pretty easily. That's been part of our culture for for decades, and that is pretty easy for folks to go along with. Uh, I think before anyone gets a chance to really see what pro esports is all about, they have an initial reaction of like, well, that's a game. That's not a sport. And it's not until you're able to really kind of break it down in this way and say, no, take a look at this. These these are men and women who are doing things at a level far beyond what the average person is capable of doing. It is similar, if not if not uh, identical to what you see in the actual physical sports realm. So I like that aspect of it as well. It gives you that extra, uh, I guess ammunition is the right way to put it, when you are talking about esports and trying to explain to someone how it really is a, a level of performance beyond what the average person tends to be able to do. Uh, through this partnership, I'm sure you've you've seen some really interesting stuff. Are there any particular uh, stories or particular revelations that you have encountered as a result of uh, this eye tracking technology being part of this experience? Yeah, uh, I mean, I would definitely say the just the level of nuanced gameplay between these Counter-Strike players is insane. I mean, we talk about, uh, you know, these guys being able to be at the top of their game. I mean, these are guys who absolutely can tell the difference between, you know, 260 hertz versus 142 hertz. Uh, there's jokes of, out there about how the human eye can only see, you know, 30 FPS. That is completely not true at all. Um, you know, the Counter-Strike guys within E-League and a lot of these guys here are just very... Um, uh, their their senses are extreme. You know, when, when you also look at how some of these guys play, there's a player like JDM on Team Liquid who leans back, you know, three, four feet behind his chair. The distance between his eyes to the screen is wildly different from, you know, another player uh, who may be near seven inches away. Um, we found that to be interesting in the studio setting when it comes to calibrating the eye-tracking units for the various players and making sure that the way that they compete is how they're being calibrated at the time. But, 
I think just at a very high level, um, people, once we slow down the game and once we get the replays and all the technology finally as caught up to be able to subtly break down the nuances of how quick they are in terms of milliseconds and hundreds of milliseconds, we're going to quickly see just, you know, the difference between uh, the top 1% of players and, and the rest of us out there. And uh, that's going to be very exciting to see. Yeah, and, and you know, something else that stood out to me here with with the initial rollout and kind of the first the first time the, the getting technical segment has started to run on the E-League coverage um, has been the fan reaction. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, part of the reason that we're doing this is we want to improve the viewership experience. You know, selfishly for us as gamers and fans because we're watching these things ourselves and we want to be able to, uh, to have a better viewing experience, but... If you look at the feedback, uh, you know, just on, on Facebook comments, on what you see happening on Twitch, on the E-League broadcast, like, the comments from fans is, is really encouraging around this. They, they appreciate this technology. They appreciate being able to get a, a better glimpse at how these professionals are performing real time, something they've never seen before. So, you know, as we... As we roll out new, new innovations and technologies, we do obviously a ton of work and we're working with and talking with our fans and our customers and just gamers overall to, um, to make sure we're delivering what it is they want. Ultimately, Alienware is trying to deliver that ultimate gaming experience. We feel this plays right into that. But it's always a, it's always reassuring one. Um, when we go down a path and we work with partners um, and roll out new technologies and new features and so on to see that see the fan reaction is um, is a positive uh, is, is coming back positive and that to me has definitely stood out. I haven't seen anything negative around this technology. Um, just a lot of appreciation from uh, from the gamer community. Well, I love that there is one thing I do want to add. Oh yes, please. In the fan feedback, people have been clamoring about what a anti-cheating tool this may wind up being. Um, it's curious to see, because what if one day, they, you know, we all had monitors that always tracked our eyes, and you could never disable that. Um, that. That would be a very interesting future. When we come back, we'll chat a bit more with Robert from Turner about how they took the challenge of taking the tech created by Toby and Alienware, and they found a way to incorporate it into eSports broadcasts. But first... Let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. So that kind of leads us naturally into a discussion about the challenges of presenting esports to an audience in a way where they can really appreciate what's going on. And that, that ties into this topic of the, uh, the eye tracking technology. We know that Toby Tech was the company to start working on the actual hardware and the basic software. And we had uh, Dell and Alienware that were working on the various uh, uh, consumer products that incorporate that technology. But when it comes to actually implementing it in a way that makes sense both from an administrative perspective where you guys are trying to find ways of, of adding value to the presentation and from a consumer perspective or from an audience perspective where they can appreciate even more the capabilities of these elite players because they're getting kind of insight into what's happening. Can you talk a little bit about that implementation and what that experience was like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, 
you know, what I would say is it, it was birthed out of actually a very casual conversation between David Chen and I, David Chen from Dell and I, um, at our major actually, and that was in January. Um, you know, I had seen a demo of some behind the scenes software that a League of Legends team was using to improve their performance with eye tracking and thought, wow, this is a really interesting, um, how do we democratize that? Like, how do we bring that to the audience watching the game instead of making it like a back office tool that a team is using to try and optimize its performance? And, you know, there are challenges for sure, right? So in March, um, I went to Austin and we, we had a meeting and in that meeting, Toby actually brought their ideas on how it could work. Um, but, you know, to be candid, uh, they hadn't ever run a competitive gaming event. And as you alluded to earlier, you know, competitive integrity is extremely important to us, extremely important to the players. And so we have to be very careful about what we do in the studio and how we produce things. And as a result, um, it is certainly not as simple to do something like this eye tracking as one would think it would be. Um, so to kind of walk through the components of how it works, um, you need a computer with an eye tracker connected to it um, that is capturing gaze in real time. Then you also need a video feed of the point of view of the player in real time. Um, and the two things, like the, the eye tracker needs to be synchronized for the resolution and aspect ratio that the player is running the game at. And of course, then the POV feed of the gameplay also needs to be exactly what the player is looking at. So it can't be at a different aspect ratio or resolution and have it make perfect sense, mm -hmm. right? Sure. And then you need to take those two things, the, the video feed of the gaze and the actual POV, and then use broadcast production equipment to merge those two things in real time, so you're getting an accurate um, feed of the two things. Well, in order to do all of what I just mentioned, it actually requires two computers that the player is not even playing on. Um, we have one machine that is the dedicated gaze tracker that's actually outputting a green screen with the gaze on it. So. That computer is, the, the tracker itself is mounted underneath the monitor that the player is sitting in front of on stage. And then we're using, um, this might be a little too in the weeds, but we're using a USB Cat6 extender. So we're able to run the USB 300 feet to a server room. Um, and then the actual computer that the gaze tracking software is running on is in this server room hundreds hundreds of feet away from the actual stage. So we can't run the gaze tracking software on the computer that the player is playing on because we can't do anything that, that could impact competitive integrity. Then 
for the POV. Um, in order to get that POV, we cannot take it from the player's computer. So we don't ever take a video output from a player's computer and feed that into our broadcast infrastructure because the output from the video card on a player's computer needs to go directly to the monitor. Mm -hmm. There cannot be anything in that loop that introduces any latency. So, uh, and again, in order to, to maintain competitive integrity, we cannot use the computer that the player is playing on to produce the POV footage that we're using to produce this content. So instead, I have yet another computer in the same server room that is connected to a relay game server and is mimicking that player's point of view experience. So what we've done is we very carefully keep track of what aspect ratio the player is running the game at on stage. We mimic those settings and all of the other settings that, uh, that players traditionally use on this secondary computer. And then we're um, linking it to that player so that it shows their POV the entire game and then feeding that into our broadcast infrastructure. And then upstream from all of that, there is a broadcast switcher that is merging the gaze output with the green removed, obviously, mm -hmm. and that POV footage and feeding that to the control room where a producer can watch it in real time and decide, is this something I want our talent to talk about or not talk about? And so we're, we've now done this for three weeks of this tournament. And we're, you know, to be honest with you, if you had talked to me before the tournament, um, I, my, I was very careful to say, I don't know what we're going to get. I don't know what kind of insights we're going to get. I don't know if this is really going to be like super interesting content or just interesting content. Is it going to reveal things or not reveal things? Um, all I knew was that we had a proof of concept that we could capture this, and then we were going to see what we could do with it. But I think we're really, really pleased with how the content has come uh, come together. And the fans uh, are just blown away. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a uh, statement about what Turner Sports brings to the esports space, where we're trying to you know, constantly be additive and constantly be innovative, but not doing innovation and additive things for the sake of doing them, doing them to enhance the, the fan engagement and the fan viewing experience. Um, and with this, you know, what I would say is there is no nothing analogous to this in traditional sports. You can see where a player runs. You can see them kick the ball but you have no idea about like what they're looking at in real time or what their intents are or what they even consider, right? Mm -hmm. You don't really have any raw data about their thought process in traditional sports except what they tell you, right? Mm -hmm. um, but with this, this data, th this content, it, it reveals thought process in a way that nothing else in sports or esports does at this point. You see them look, you know, 
do their mental check. What's my health? How much ammo do I have? You know, where, where are the rest of my team on the map? Like you see that in real time uh, in the content. We're not, we haven't gotten to the point where we can really do this real time in a player yet. Although I want to do that at some point. Um, and I'm so excited because it's, it is really like this super interesting combination of biometric technology that is not very invasive and um, this sport that is like sort of made out of data and it would be almost impossible to do this for traditional sports like you know I I um, I'm very fortunate in that I'm a, I'm a part of the team that also does the production for our NBA games also does the production for our MLB games and so I get to hear some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that is considered and talked about, and, and we certainly don't treat esports any differently than we do those other things from a thought process perspective. But you know, as I'm sitting in the meetings in the last couple of weeks, and we're talking about MLB, like I'm actually thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool to see like Gaze Trace as a batter's in the batter's box and the pitches coming in? Mm-hmm. But like, there is no way to do that. Right. But be super cool. So, so this is like that, though. This is a step in that direction, right? Um, so, I, I mean, for me, like, I think it's super exciting, and I would love to see this sort of like intent-based data capture. Um, you know, what did he really look at? What did he consider? I would love to see that in baseball or football or basketball. How cool would it be to see the, the quarterbacks checkdowns in real time in football? You know, um, what did he consider before he threw the ball over there? And what did he see before he threw that ball? Like there's, there's just not anything like this. So, so to tack back to esports though, um, and the content that we've captured so far, you know, I think it's, some of it is, has revealed oh, that guy does exactly what we expected. And then in other cases, it's like, wow, he spends a lot more time checking the more basic things than you would expect. And I think, you know, with players, uh, other players, like, you know, regular stream of consciousness, like everyday Counter-Strike players, um, this is an opportunity for them to kind of learn, oh, wow, when I go around that corner, I don't look at that box. I start over there. And sort of optimize their game too. Yeah, I also I also like how you know you you had this incredible challenge of being able to like all the pieces were there, but in order for them to actually work, you had to go go to these enormous considerations so that you did not affect the performance of any player's machine. Because clearly, uh, I mean, it would be the same as if you were to uh, to mess with a, a you know a, a professional athlete in a traditional sport, if they were to mess with their equipment, it would be almost like sabotage. So you're, you know, you're talking about like the not wanting to put any kind of load on a graphics processing unit that is meant to run the game on the player's machine. I would say that that's sort of analogous to what you were saying with 
uh, professional sports in the in the physical realm, the idea that we can't really do that eye tracking technique with uh, traditional sports, largely because it would require us to outfit professional players with additional equipment that would then in turn affect their performance. Thus, you end up you end up with the classic quantum physics issue of anything you observe you are affecting right so so it's it's interesting that you know you had to find that workaround in the professional sports uh, arena for for pro video gamers and i think once you do consider that in the realm of the the physical sports as well even if you're not familiar with professional video game sports or e-leagues or anything of those na- that nature uh, you start to say oh well now i'm getting it now i'm getting it i see it's like you know if if i walked up and I realized that the bat that I want to use is nowhere to be found and I'm going to have to use a different bat and it's one that's of a slightly different weight and I'm not it's enough when you're talking about at that elite level of performance that it makes a measurable difference so uh, I, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation and and kind of get that perspective because I think it does it's very enlightening to people who are unfamiliar with the uh, the subject uh, is there anything that you have witnessed in uh, your time with E-League that stands out as one of those really special moments, whether it was in a tournament or maybe it was maybe it was when you were uh, when you saw this this eye tracking technology all kind of come together? But anything that kind of is particularly special in your mind? I mean, from my personal experience to kind of tack back to personal, there's kind of three moments for me um, to, to, to take a question that asks for one and to answer with three. Um, you know, the first was the finals of our first tournament. We, re- we released uh, Game Command, which I have not mentioned, but it's a mosaic player. So like a user-directed experience where uh, end users can choose to watch any of the 10 players who are playing in real time or actually watch all 10. Um, releasing that out into the wild and seeing the fan feedback on it, um, because there was literally nothing like it in the in the world at that point, um, and there there actually still isn't like there's still nothing where you can watch all ten players at the same time um, in one UI. But um, that was the first. You know, the second was, I've, I've talked about the major in January a, a few times already, but there was a moment uh, during the finals where we crested a million concurrent viewers on Twitch, not just breaking the all-time Twitch record, but shattering it by almost 300,000 um, viewers and, you know, setting the sort of bar for competitive esports as far as viewership counts go. And then the third, honestly, is this eye tracker stuff. Um, it's always interesting to start with a theory in, I mean, I guess in March we started with a theory and go to proof of concept in June and then be sitting at a desk with white knuckles in September, hoping that that vision and all of the workarounds and hard work come together and then to see the fans react so positively, I mean, really that's what it's about, right? It's not about me or building a cool thing as much as I love building cool things. And that's kind of what I've made my living doing. Um, You know, what's important is that other people are getting some value out of that. 
and no, no other people are more important than the like fans uh, in the scene. So um, to see that, and then to see what they do with it, right? Like they've they've taken it and turned it into memes and jokes and everything. Like to me, that means it's been accepted, right? Like at the highest level, when they start making Reddit threads about joking about past tournaments with eye tracking turned on, then to me, that means we've, we've done something neat. Like those three moments for me are the, are the three most special among many, many special moments over the last three years. Those are those are great stories. And I love that this trend has been picking up steam for the last not to use a valve joke, but has been picking up steam for the past few years and seeing not just the the professional uh, video game sports industry really coming into its own in the United States. I mean, obviously, it's been a big deal in other places as well. It started really in the U.S., but I would say that it kind of blossomed in South Korea and then is now finding more acceptance in the United States, which which is great. But we're also seeing uh, people turning into kind of a an entertainment figure through their video game playing and, and reaching audiences that way. Clearly, there is a... a uh, interested invested audience they get they get really attached to certain players and certain titles uh, it's exciting and i'm glad that we're kind of like right at the point where i think it's going to explode like it's already i i guess you could argue hitting a million concurrent twitch viewers all at once that's kind of an explosion all in of itself but seeing this 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 cusp of acceptance is really exciting to me because I've been following professional gaming for a while in its various formats, whether it was through uh, uh, league, you know, tournament league play, or whether it was a group of sponsored players who were there to help represent a particular game developer, uh, anything like that. I've been following that stuff for years and seeing it now get to a point where there's, there's a, a real awareness and celebration of it is exciting to me. Uh, I love games. I love playing games. I am awful at them, but I still enjoy it. Uh, yeah, we were talking before we started recording about the games that that we would stream, and I believe you mentioned a uh, a very popular MMORPG that you occasionally would play. Yeah, I'm not afraid to break out World of Warcraft on occasion. That's fair. Among other games. Yeah, I, I my go-to, so I, I used to, uh, so people can know, in interest of full disclosure, I the game I'm most known for streaming, because I don't do it very frequently, is Minecraft, because I would hold a, a marathon session of Minecraft as part of a charity event every year, and I would play 24 hours straight of Minecraft. And then for whatever, when people would make donations... At whatever level they would donate, I would build a monument in Minecraft out of materials that were uh, comparatively difficult to find. So the more you donated, the, the, the more rare the material had to be in order for me to make a monument uh, significant for that donation. And I, it was not creative mode. It was, you know, regular mode turned on all the enemies, everything. And uh, let me tell you, somewhere around hour number 16, things get special. But uh but yeah, I, I I have a love of this as well. So I, I cannot wait to check out the the E League play. I cannot wait. I plan to actually be at the finals. 
Uh, so I cannot wait to see that in person. And uh, where can people go to experience this? I mean, eLeague.com is, is the one-stop shop for everything you'd want. Uh, when we're live, that'll point you to all the different viewing experiences that we have, and it'll give you schedule information, anything else you would want. Excellent. Robert, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope that we get a chance to talk again in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the conversation. Clearly, there's a healthy audience out there for professional gaming, from entertainment personalities to tournament players. And it'll be really interesting to see how the industry evolves from here. Could we one day see video games take a place with traditional sports in something as celebrated as the Olympics? Or will there always be at least some level of stigma in place that will prevent that from ever happening? And does it really matter as long as people are having a good time playing or watching games? I can say this. I am in my early 40s, and I watch a lot of Let's Play style videos and live streams. I enjoy watching people play games. I'm dazzled by the skills of pro-level gamers, and I find myself thoroughly entertained by certain personalities when they interact with each other while playing together. Cough, achievement hunter, cough. I think there's plenty of room for growth in that realm of entertainment. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode about the history of eSports. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuffs, reach out to me on Twitter or on Facebook. The handle I use at both is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 